If you've struggled with the right money habits for your business or for your personal life, have a listen to the story of the entrepreneurs behind Ostrich App, the app that's designed to help you create the right money habits. They're on a mission to improve global financial well-being. Listen, this interview is packed. From how a non-technical founder can build a technical product to the future of fintech, cryptocurrency, blockchains, NFT. If you've heard all these words being thrown around, you want to have a listen. Welcome to Reinventing Perspectives, the show that's made for Christian entrepreneurs. We're going to talk about everything from faith to business principles to profitability to strategy to tactics to self-care. If you need it, we'll talk about it. I'm your host, Priscilla Shumba. Without wasting any more time, let's dive into our conversation. Today, we have a very exciting guest. We have William Glass, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich. William, please introduce yourself to our audience. Thanks, Priscilla. I appreciate you having me on the Reinventing Perspectives podcast. I'm excited to be here today. Uh, So yeah, a little background. My name is William Glass. As Priscilla said, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich. Uh, We are gamifying the world's financial future. And so what that means is our mission is to improve global financial well-being. And how we're doing that is by applying game-like mechanics to finances and helping people become financially literate and work towards their financial goals and build the lives that they want. And so we're using technology to do that. And yeah, that's kind of the high level of, of what I'm doing uh, with Oscar. Very exciting. Very interesting. Um, you know, I went on there just to check out what it was about. And it's really, really very interesting. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to just tell me your journey to this point, because you're a non-technical founder. And Ostrich is a technical-based company. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how you got to that point. Yeah, exa- Priscilla, so you hit the nail on the head. I do not know how to code, um, but built a technology product without a technical co-founder. So um, my, my co-founder is uh, also non-technical, but in the finance space. So the kind of journey, I guess, started with um, my parents got divorced because of money. They didn't have the right communication. They weren't on the same page when it came to finances. And in 2008, when the financial crisis, global financial crisis hit, their marriage kind of blew up along with that. And I saw the toll that just not having, uh, you know, financial literacy and just basic understanding of how to communicate about money really affects the real world and real life. And there's tons of statistics, both globally and then, you know, obviously we're US based, but US based in terms of, that you have a much higher likelihood of attempting suicide when you're in financial distress. It's 20 times higher. Finance is the second leading cause of divorce in the United States. There's these real world problems that um, stem from finances. So that's kind of where the idea came from. But in terms of the journey, it was a, it was a process. So I um, have been a very much a, a personal finance nerd, um, so to speak, and uh, devour different books and podcasts and topics and movements that are in personal finance. And so I've been very um, very focused on that throughout my early career. And I got to a point where the financial tools that I was using weren't, they weren't solving the problems that, that these problems that we mm-hmm. kind of talked about. Um, I was in sales and I saw people that would go make a huge bonus and go out and spend all the money and they were already, you know, $80,000 in debt and see people on the other side of the coin that would go hit a big bonus and not spend it. And they were ended up retiring super early. And, just these different dichotomies in terms of people's relationships with money and wanting to find a better way because the financial tools that were out on the marketplace, 
I consume them. I use Mint and personal capital and all these different tools, but they didn't solve that emotional side, the emotional decision-making. And so that's really where kind of the idea with Ostrich came from. And I kind of worked on the idea on and off for a couple of years and then ended up moving up to New York City to work with an artificial intelligence company, again, on the sales side. So still not technical here. <laughs> and reconnected with my co-founder, who I, I knew from um, playing soccer in college and football for, uh, for, the, for the Aussies, um, <laughs> playing football. And we, uh, we, we reconnected and he was in the finance space and we decided that there's something here. And so we, we ended up figuring out how to build it. And as a non-technical founder, there's a few different options that people kind of spout that you can do. One is go find a, a technical co-founder, which when you're in the idea stage can be tricky, um, you know, because you're kind of asking them to do all, all the work, in, so to speak, right? You know, because you don't really add as much value as a technical person, a technical product. So that was a really tough one. The second is go hire an outsourcing firm and go spend fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars to go have someone develop the product for you, which wasn't an option for us. And so we ended up figuring out how to scrap it together, and we used a web version that didn't work very well, and we had to start over and ended up finding a no-code builder. So there's these different platforms that allow you to build software without knowing how to code. So you can visually kind of drag and drop the user interface. You can plug and play what happens when someone clicks this button and you don't have to know how to code and they'll compile it for you. So there's different tools and that's what we ended up using to build the product. And it's now available on iOS and Android and we wow, built it ourselves. A phenomenal story because a lot of times you think of an app and you think of coding and, and all that, but clearly technology has moved far from from coding. And that's probably something that the average person doesn't know. So definitely thanks for sharing that with our audience. And it's a really, really great story. Um, I think when you do talk about money and the emotional side of money, I think we all can really relate to that of either being on extremes, like you said, either overspending everything we have or being so frugal to the point of not enjoying life. Now, what do you mean by the emotional side of money and how have you tackled that with ostrich? Yeah. So we all have a relationship with money, whether you realize it or not, you have a relationship. And this starts when we're kids, we see what our parents do. We see what other family members do. We get ingrained with those habits. And then obviously marketing and society plays a role on that in terms of how we spend and the kind of consumer culture that we live in, in this day and age encourages you to go spend versus save and invest and things like that. So we all have this relationship with money, whether you recognize it or not. And Unfortunately, for the majority of people, it's usually negative. There's connotations around, oh man, I shouldn't have spent this money, or I'm going to go make myself feel better because, and, and shopping is the way that I make myself feel better. Some people indulge in food, whatever that is, but spending and shopping is one of those kind of crutches. So we all have this emotional relationship when things are going well or not going well in our lives. Talking about the emotional side of money, that's what I mean, is those kind of triggers that lead us to either save, because as you mentioned, Priscilla, some people go the other the other way, right? Where they're just so frugal that they're not enjoying lives. They're not spending money where it does add value and fulfillment to their lives. How we approach that with Ostrich is by helping people build strong habits around their long-term goals, right? There's this struggle that we have as a, as a species that has to do with like our brain and how we're wired, where we're going to prioritize short-term pleasure and short-term happiness over long-term, because that's just how we're, we're wired. And so it's really difficult to do that. But habits are one of the things that are shown to help 
if you build the right habits, can help you focus more on the long term. So that's what Ostrich is focused around, is we help people come in, figure out what their long-term financial goals are, and then create challenges around those goals to help get them closer to there. And those challenges are you know, either daily, weekly, monthly check-ins that allow you to start building that habit of doing things that get you closer to your financial goals and ultimately your life goals. When I think of money, a lot of times we like lose all sense of being logical. And just for some reason around money, we just lose it and stop being logical about it. And at the same time, there's a lot of maybe like shame or not wanting to be honest about talking about money to other people. So really having an app where you have someone talking to you and pushing you along the way, that's a really brilliant way of, you know, attacking this really important issue. Now, our audience, William, is entrepreneurs, early entrepreneurs. The issue of money is a big thing when it comes to entrepreneurs. Now, what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen that entrepreneurs make surrounding money? Yeah. So this is, this is really interesting because entrepreneurs, you, ha- you are almost always, always optimist, right? Because you are doing something that has a 90% likelihood of failure and believing in your mission and what you're doing, which is awesome and is, is absolutely necessary. But there's also this over-optimism when it comes in uh, investing or throwing money at problems. So a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've spoken with and some of the mistakes that I've made in my own entrepreneurial journey are throwing money at things that I thought would solve problems versus really thinking about creatively how to solve those. So that means overextending yourself in terms of trying to outsource all of your sales. That's something that I've seen a lot. So um, I host a podcast called Silicon Alley where I talk to entrepreneurs similar to, to, to what you've got here, Priscilla. And that's the number one thing that I hear entrepreneurs say when they talk about their biggest mistakes or around overextending or trying to hack algorithms like Instagram or things like that because they think it'll grow their business. So when it comes to your relationship with money, You've got your personal one, but then as an entrepreneur, you also have one towards your business. And I think separating those two out are really important because as an entrepreneur, you are doing something risky. And if you leave a full-time job or something along those lines and you're living off savings, you have to be, you have to have a different relationship in your personal life as you do in your entrepreneurial life. And you need to separate out your finances in a way where (laughs) you've got the, you've got the money that you know is going towards your business, but you're also secure from a personal perspective so that you can go take those risks and innovate and build your business. I think of entrepreneurs in this way. You you have an idea, especially the early entrepreneur, and then it's either you feel like there's that phrase, you need money to make money. And then there's also that avenue of like, yep. well, you, you don't need money to make money. You need other ways of, you know, coming up with creative ideas to get your thing started, or you can bootstrap what is your philosophy yeah. when it comes to early entrepreneurs and how to fund their businesses? Raising money, not raising money. How do we go about this? Yeah. So mm. the age old problem, right? The chicken or the egg. If only mm. I had money, then we could grow. Yeah. That that just virtuous cycle, Priscilla, you, you hit the nail on the head there. For us, one of the things that I kind of skipped over in, in my story of, of Ostrich is that I had $50,000 set aside to go mm. spend on an outsourcing firm. We were going to go that route where we were going to throw money at the problem, so to speak. And we chose not to because something personal came up in my personal life where someone needed that money. So I wrote a check to someone that I was going to invest this money. As I said, I had money that was set aside for personal living as well as money that was going to go into the business. And something came up with a personal relative. And the only thing that would solve the problem was money. And it was something that 
I chose to do. They didn't ask for it, but I went ahead and made that decision. And that meant that we had to make different decisions in our business where bootstrapping was really the only option. And not being knowing how to code, we had to figure it out. So I'm a big believer based on my own journey that if we would have spent that $50,000, we would have built mm. the wrong product. I truly believe that we would have, because we would have invested early, we wouldn't have done the groundwork and legwork that we needed. So I think that's one of the challenges is when you have money and you're throwing money at problems, whether you decide to raise capital from an investor early on, is that there's this tendency where if you haven't done the groundwork and really thought through where every dollar is going to go with, if you raise money, you can just throw money at a problem. So I think that's a really important aspect. And we did have an opportunity to raise $60,000 from an overseas investor when we first started Ostrich. And we turned them down. There were some things with the terms that didn't make sense to us. We felt like we weren't ready to accept that as well. So this was before I had spent that $50,000. <laughs> Otherwise, it might have been a, a different story in terms of us deciding to take that investment. But at the end of the day, it didn't feel like it was the right partnership. There were some terms that didn't make sense for our business. And we were going to give away a large percentage of the company before we'd even proved out the concept. And that didn't sit right with us long term, knowing that when you raise capital, you kind of end up on this wheel, right? Where you've got to go get the next round and then you've got to go get the next round and you've got to go get the next round until you either sell or you IPO or, or whatever that looks like. That tends to be the typical trajectory for businesses that that scale. So I don't I, I think it it depends a little bit, Priscilla, on what industry you're in. But for us, we could build our product. There wasn't regulatory concerns because we're not touching people's actual money. Um, if we were doing that, it would be a different story because we would have certain legal things that we would have to comply with. So I think that's another important aspect when an entrepreneur thinks about whether to bootstrap or raise money is can you build this yourself without throwing money at the problem, so to speak? Can you do it yourself? Can you be creative? Or is it truly a business that's capital intensive where you you have to have money. And if you don't have that, then you do need to go raise. Really great point that you made, because I think a lot of times having money can actually be a bad thing because you don't actually yeah. think things through properly to search out other options of what you can do first before you spend money. And that's the advantage of being a startup, right? Why do you see large companies don't tend to innovate? They're not the ones that are innovators. It's entrepreneurs that are starting out that have unique ideas because they're scrappy. They don't have that cash problem, meaning they've got too much money and can throw money at problems and try to do things, you know, perfect. Whereas entrepreneurs just scrap it together and, and figure it out, early stage entrepreneurs. So since you're in the fintech space, you know, a lot of people don't understand what that term really means. So if you can just give us an understanding of what is fintech really? Yeah. So fintech first off just stands for finance and technology. They're blended together, fintech. So Fintech is technology or solutions that are in the finance space. And um, there's different, slightly different definitions, different types, but you could think of PayPal, for example, as being a fintech company. There's all different sectors. There's people that support payments, people that support dashboarding apps like a, a Mint or Personal Capital. I'm, I'm not sure if that's over in, <laughs> in Australia, but uh, those are some of the tools where you can link your bank accounts and from the personal finance space. So there's different categories within fintech. Um, but fintech is kind of this broad term that covers anything that really has to do with finance, personal finance, and, and their technology solutions that are sort of innovating the way that we've done things previously. We'd say cryptocurrencies, but then fintech. 
Okay, so this is a very hot issue. <laughs> I'm glad I've got you on so I, we can have an insight and tell us what is going on with this cryptocurrency. What is your take on cryptocurrency as an investment? As an investment. So there's a couple things here. Cryptocurrency is different than blockchain, which is the underlying technology. So blockchain enables cryptocurrencies and a lot of other things that people are really excited about. And I think long-term blockchain is... As a, as a technology has been compared to what the internet was in the 1990s, right? So this technology has the ability to change not just cryptocurrencies and, and payments, but to change all sorts of industries um, because of how blockchain works. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but I can give you my take and my understanding of cryptocurrencies. Please yeah. do, please do. So there's there's different types of cryptocurrency. So the one that you hear the most about is Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin was the original one that was founded in 2008 and fluctuates in, in value quite a lot. I think you see Elon Musk tweet about it and it shoots through the roof. Um, Tesla just invested mm-hmm. when we're recording this like one point two billion or one point six billion dollars in in Bitcoin. So there's starting to be this adoption from the corporate world and institutions that are starting to adopt um, Bitcoin as a potential um, reserve currency. So that's I guess that's one take on it. But there's these other cryptocurrencies that are also coming out that again are built on different blockchains. So Bitcoin is just one on. The Bitcoin blockchain, but there's other blockchains and cryptocurrencies out there like Ethereum, which allows you to do more creative things. Um, so if you're going to do research into cryptocurrency, it's changing so fast that anything I would say about whether you should look into a specific cryptocurrency is going to be is going to be outdated tomorrow. Um, but what I can say is that you should definitely invest time in this, whether it's just learning about it, right? So investing time and understanding how this is going to work because it's very much like the internet in the 1990s. There are going to be companies that are built that would not have been possible off of this technology. So, and different solutions. So if you're an entrepreneur and maybe you're not at all in fintech or in the currency space, blockchain could be a potential solution for you in a completely different sector like manufacturing or even consumables. There's this whole new industry called NFTs and I don't know if you've heard about this, but NFTs are starting to, to pop up, which stands for non-fungible tokens. And they're this way to create scarcity in the digital world. Because right now, Priscilla, you share this podcast and the file is now available across the world. Anyone can go download it, kind of take it, and you no longer own it because it's all these copies. So you technically do own the, the intellectual property, but anyone can go make a copy of it and... It's, it's hard for you to keep track of that. And you're not going to necessarily make any money if someone goes and pirates it, right? So these NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are this new type of, um, you can think of them, they sit on the blockchain kind of like a cryptocurrency, but it's another um, token that's in the blockchain that sits on these blockchains. And it's a way to store value. So art right now is being minted in non-fungible token. So it can still be shared digitally. But someone actually owns that transaction. And what's really neat is that the creator can actually continue to make money as that sells and the value goes up, right? Picasso could only sell his painting once, but now he can make a percentage on every single transaction from here on out like royalties. And so that's what's really unique and cool about blockchain and cryptocurrencies is that there's all these other use cases that are developing. Now, what do you mean by minted? Because I've heard that and I was trying to understand, like, what would that mean in the digital world? <laughs> yeah. So 
I, I have, again, I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. So definitely there's a lot of people that are way more qualified to talk about this, but it's essentially creating a unique token. So minting a token, just like when you would go mint new, print new dollars, right? That's minting new currency that you then put in circulation. It's the same thing on this blockchain. I am creating a new token that has a unique identifier that no one else can copy. And the blockchain secures it, shows who owns it. And I have the ability to then transfer that to someone else. And by minting it, you're creating this unique asset. So it's just essentially creating a new identifier that represents this either digital piece of art, or in some cases, people are putting physical art and other things on the blockchain. This is the first time I've heard about the blockchain being where the value really lies. Because I've heard of a lot of different uh, cryptocurrencies, and it just seems like (laughs) they're addressing all the problems that have been there in the traditional financial system. But the real value is in the blockchain. Correct. Yeah. And so the blockchain, to break it down, is it's a decentralized ledger. And what that really means is that typically when you do accounting, there's one person that has the main ledger that says, okay, here's who owns what, right? And when you think about businesses, no one knows if that person changes things or edits things because there's no one else auditing it. And so with blockchain technology, there's all the different what they call nodes, which just means computers, things that are connected to that blockchain. So for example, we can take Bitcoin. So all the different um, computers that are connected and run the Bitcoin blockchain software, whether it's miners, which we won't get into that, but all the different computers that are connected to the blockchain help secure the blockchain because the ledger is decentralized. Everyone has a record. And in order for a new block to be created, it has to be validated by the network. So if someone tries to change something, all the other computers that are connected can say, you know what, that that's not accurate. Someone's trying to change something in the past. So we're not going to approve that. So it has to be, there has to be a consensus with all of the nodes that are on the network to say this is the correct. We validate that this is accurate in the past and the new transactions will then be added to that um, next block. And then it goes, it continues and you've got this chain, hence the blockchain, where you can go back in time and you can see every single transaction that took place. But what's cool is that you don't have to put your name on it, right? So there's these ways where it is publicly available and decentralized so everyone can validate it, but you don't have to put your personal information on there because there's a layer of privacy that's embedded in it. So the blockchain technology has, and we're talking about transactions, but when we say like a non-fungible token, so when you create a new token on this new block, it's just, if you think of it as a transaction, that's what minting means. And so that's what the power is, is that you can do all these different things when it's no longer a single source that validates every transaction or holds the ledger or the record um, where they could erase things and you would never know. Wow. It's, it's like a whole world in itself. <laughs> Dif- definitely. It is. And again, I am not, I am not the expert on, on blockchain. So definitely do your, do your own research. It's such a, it, it might seem super overwhelming and there's all these terms that are really challenging at first to understand like decentralized ledge, like just all this stuff was really confusing the first time that I started to dive into this. And, but it's, it's definitely worth, you know, a few hours, you know, every however frequently you want to take a look at it, but definitely learning about it will put you in a place to take advantage, especially as an entrepreneur early stage when some of these use cases are more proven out. So for you, what do you see as really the gaps in fintech and the future 
authentic. Yeah, so I think we talked about one aspect um, from the the technical side, right? Blockchain being the future of fintech and beyond. Um, I think the other is that we're going to start building tools that actually help people in new ways and where the current system with fintech has been very much focused on and, and I'm talking about the personal finance space specifically, has been very focused on the logical brain. It's spreadsheets, it's dashboards, it's numbers, but we don't operate in numbers in most of the way that we that we work. And so the approach that we're taking with Ostrich is very much focused on that human-centered approach. And I think that truly is the future of fintech. Human-centered, working into the way that our lives already work and making things easier and simpler for us, reducing the cost of transactions, um, that is really where the future of fintech lies. And again, focusing on that on the personal finance space specifically, focusing on the human side, that emotional side of money and helping people lift themselves up, right? We've got so much inequality across the world. And that's where I think fintech is really going to take us is to help bridge the gaps that have grown over the last century. The focus being on numbers and data hasn't been working, but we haven't switched the approach to looking at, like you said, the human side. The audience is really going to appreciate that it's addressing really what is happening, that the randomness is the is the humanity in in finance. And addressing that part is where, you know, people begin to get traction. And I love that your mission is to improve global financial well-being. Yes. <laughs> now listen, William, I read in your bio that you were in Thailand for a couple of years. So... How did that come yeah. into the story? <laughs> yeah, Priscilla. So after I graduated college, the only thing that I knew that I wanted to do was to live abroad for at least a year to prove that if things went really bad in the United States, I would be able to survive outside. That was like my number one goal. I don't maybe it's really silly, but for whatever reason, I was like, you know what? If if things go bad in the United States, I need to be able to survive somewhere else. And I had done in college a, a two-week field study in Thailand where we were focusing on Burmese refugees and what the situation that was going on in Myanmar and Burma. And it was strange being in a country, but not focusing on the people in the country because we were focused on at refugee camps. We were working with nonprofits and NGOs. And Thailand stuck out to me. I was like, this is a really interesting place that I spent two weeks and I can say that I, I don't know that much about because we were so focused on this other group and community while I was in the country. And so I ended up uh, applying through the US State Department. They've got something called a, a Fulbright Scholarship. It goes both ways. They bring folks from across the globe to the United States to teach and do research and then vice versa. They send folks from the United States overseas to teach and do research. And so I was lucky enough to be selected and went over and uh, taught English in rural Thailand, uh, surrounded by rice paddies and sugarcane fields for uh, for 14 months. And it was uh, just an absolutely incredible experience. Learned so many things from life and just made connections today where I've, I've got mm. a Thai family now that we send each other birthday presents and and uh, different different gifts and write each other all the time and, and still stay really, really connected. And it, that's that's kind of how I ended up in uh, in Thailand. <laughs> that's a very interesting story because when you said, oh, I actually giggled a little bit. I'm sorry about that. When you said uh, you wanted to find out how you could survive outside the U.S. And I'm like, <laughs> people are like, the U.S. is the best place to be. Where else would you want to be? <laughs> I know. I know, right? It's that, yeah, exactly. It depends on where, where your context, right? I'm like, well, if things go bad here, 
can I uh, can I make it can I make it somewhere else and and survive? So, <laughs> but I'm I'm all for learning different ways of life. I mean, it's a rich experience for everyone to learn how other people live and just to appreciate how other people live with your mission. Some of that must have come from what you saw in Thailand. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, I think the principles, especially when it comes to personal finance, it, we don't really teach it anywhere. Mm. And, you know, the rules are being rewritten by central banks and central bankers and <laughs> government and things like that all the time. It's one of those things where I think it's, at least from my experience and my co-founder is actually originally from uh, the UK. So it's something at least that bridges the, the cultures that we've been uh, we've been exposed to, and I mean, you just look at the inequality, and you you know it exists, mm-hmm. right? I mean, across the globe, there's so much, you can look at inequality from country to country, and then even within countries. So I think that there's this opportunity where if we can lift people up from the bottom, that supports everything, and that helps everything. And I don't know, it just seems like such a such an important problem that no one has really tried to solve or no one has an incentive to within the finance industry, mm-hmm. right? If you're really wealthy, why do you want to educate other people on how they can make money? That just <laughs> messes with your deals and your business and your ability to take advantage, right? I know in the United States, we have a big problem with payday loans and predatory lending. Mm-hmm. And there's this cycle where the people at the bottom that don't have access to financial services, banks, institutions end up in this cycle. And I think it's very easy to to get stuck in that. And it's just a shame because if those folks had the right one, there's there's an, there's a whole nother issue when it comes to income. And that is something that Ostrich can't solve. But what we can do is when folks do earn or at least be educated about what their options are. So that's where we can add value. So I'm not pretending that we're going to be able to solve this problem alone, but one key solution is at least giving the financial literacy piece. And that's something that through my experience globally, internationally, I've seen is is definitely uh, in need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, William, thank you so much for sharing that and the work that you're doing to Ostrich, because I think that's really, really very important work. And from our perspective, we believe that entrepreneurs have a big role to play in alleviating poverty. So this is definitely an important fact. William, what book would you suggest if someone was to read one book specifically for an early entrepreneur for yourself? What did you find was a game changer? Yeah. Oh, man. So I'm a big reader. So there's a lot, <laughs> a lot that I could choose from. I think if you're looking at technology, I think it's really important. And it's, it's one that's been quoted a lot, but it's super valuable. And that's the Lean Startup. And that will teach you how to think about from a technology perspective. So this is specific to technology entrepreneurs about how to validate your product, how to quickly get it out to market, how to not waste a bunch of time and money and build something that people will really um, latch onto. And then not only go from, you know, finding a first initial customer, but how do you bridge the gap? and reach a much larger scale and have a bigger impact. So that would definitely be one for technology entrepreneurs that I would, I would recommend. What has faith meant to you on your journey? Faith is something that's really important to me. My grandmother, she, she worked at a church for a really long time. It was a Unitarian church. So I have kind of had this instilled in me of wanting to spread love and joy. And I think that's part of this mission with Ostrich is applying those principles to creating a world that's better, more inclusive, and allows people to live the way that they should be able to and not be as stressed and focused on these different things. So I think faith 
has been really, really important in terms of shaping the vision for what we're building and as kind of like a true north of like, are we actually creating something that is going to improve the world and make it a better place? And so for me, that's really, really what faith has meant in, in Ostrich. And there's the whole other aspect of just continuing to go. So we were, we were in a, a pitch competition yesterday, a semifinalist, and we didn't make it to the final round. So we weren't selected for that, which is really tough. And so continuing to have that faith in what we're doing and what we're building, I think is really, really important. And that's where leaning, leaning on that overarching mission is so, so important. So that's, that's what faith has meant to, to me and kind of our journey. Um, and I say our, meaning the Andrew and I co-founder as we, as we build Ostrich. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's important for entrepreneurs to see people who've, you know, taken an idea and a concept and a vision and brought it to life and to really see what it takes to bring something into being and what that journey looks like. So thank you very much, uh, William, for sharing. And to our audience, please go to getostrich.com slash download and get this app and build the right money habits for your personal life and your business. I am already signed up. So I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to be using Ostrich and I'm sure build great money habits. Thank you, William. If you got any value out of today's episode, please do share it and leave a review. Let us know how we can serve you better and connect with us on social media, on Instagram and on our Facebook page at Reinventing Perspectives. We'd love to connect with you. Also, do check out our latest book, The Christian Entrepreneur's Toolkit. It's available on Amazon.com. Thank you again for taking the time to listen in. Have a great day.